Poor kids are just as bright and just as talented as white kids. Wealthy kids, black kids. I'm not going to get into what I know or what I don't know. Here's what I know. to the latest episode of the Lever podcast and thanks for tuning in. Um, I will be your host for this afternoon's chat. My name's Melanie. Um, thanks for the invitation, Luke. I'd like to begin by acknowledging that we're producing this on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and I'd like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. As the only country in the Commonwealth to not have a treaty, there's definitely a role for each and every one of us to play towards a more reconciled Australia. I'm delighted to have with me today, courtesy of Zoom, three delightful women, Kate, Zaya and Erin. Welcome, ladies. Hi. Thanks. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of setting the scene, uh, it's probably worthwhile saying that this chat is taking place during stage four COVID restrictions in Melbourne. So what that basically means is where we might have been renting an Airbnb and having some fireside chats, we can't. Um, so we're each in our respective homes on the Zoom uh, and recording via our phones and I sincerely hope that works out. <laughs> um, so today's episode came about in m many ways because of a previous conversation that we had here on the lever called unlearning monogamy uh i think it was season two episode two that about there so if you did, didn't hear it you can um find that on apple podcasts um we got some really really um heartwarming feedback um and it got me thinking about how important it was to share stories about unconventional topics by conventional women or ordinary topics by extraordinary women. And so in the weeks that's followed, like maybe it's been months that time goes, so there's such a weird timeline with COVID. I've been mulling over what it might be like to record an anti-story that celebrates women's individualism, intuition and intimacy uh, where we challenge patriarchal myths created and enforced through systems of oppression to curtail our adventures, to numb our passions and pleasures, and to stigmatize our connection to our sensual selves. And I'm super lucky that my life is filled with incredible women who live up to this challenge. And I'm so grateful that I've got three of them here with me today to share their stories. 
Um, but before we kick off, I <clears throat> wanted to ask what your podcast prep was like, um, which is a curly one. And I'm only saying it because Kate messaged me before and I really laughed out loud to realize that her prep and mine was really similar. Uh, so I don't know if you want to speak to that, Kate, or if if Erin or Zaya, you'd like to comment. I can kick off just because I guess you've given me a little uh, nudge there. <laughs> and it was actually a hilarious morning. I was almost a little bit worried that, as my brother would normally say, um, I've, I've cooked it before the interview, the podcast even has happened, because I've spent the morning in this kind of flushed, fecund kind of furor having literally just thinking I'm just going to do a bit of research, you know, find out what the leave is all about and um, get a sense of the podcast and I'll listen to Unlearning Monogamy, which was the one that you spoke to before. And I was on a walk, which is also how I like to do my research and my prep because for me it's not exercise, it's exorcise. So how do I get the demons or the the ideas, the momentum flowing literally through exercise? Um, listening to this podcast, and I, I do wish that I had a journal at the time, but I ended up um, just leaving voice recording after voice recording for poor Mel, being like, oh, my God, and, oh, my God, and, um, and literally <laughs> kind of aligning as Mel has so beautifully introduced, aligning this conversation that was had on monogamy and non-monogamy around, you know, what what is it like to, in a way, lead an unconventional life? Um, and, and what does that require of us to do it in a respectful, healthy, communicative and quite lush kind of way? So, um Prep was listening to the podcast, but also journaling. I mean, if you could see what's below me right now, it's a massive A5 journal with um, Copic markers. I thought burgundy and gold was quite lush for my prep for this conversation. And I literally map my ideas and and I guess sort of um, mel some of your prompts before going into this, just kind of map them in a very messy, organic way across a page. I am a Taurian, so anything that feels good looks good is good. I'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> pleasure. Pleasure oriented. Well, picking up, picking up on that and the lush side of things. Um, yes, you did tell me about that prep, but what I found really funny was your physical preparation, which was something that I undertook as well. And I feel like it's so femme, you know, uh, um, would you feel okay to speak to 100%. that? <laughs> so, um, Basically, I'm on a date with you all because I found myself in the shower earlier, literally shaving, um, putting Aesop, my favorite Aesop shampoo through my hair. Like, this is the nicest my hair has looked since stage four. Um, and like lathering my favorite creams all over my body. And I got out and I was like, so Mel, just want to let you know, I think I've kind of prepared this like a date. And it's essentially because this does feel juicy, lush, to to be invited to converse with women and to hear your stories when, I mean, let's face it, again, when we think about more mainstream 
you know, um, I suppose platforms, we don't get, we're not privy to a lot of these uh, these stories unless we sort of look for them. So it felt like a really um, special event. So I'm shaved, guys. Um, (laughs) Even even trimmed, you know, looked after the pubic hair, did the whole thing. And it wasn't until I got out of the shower, I was like, interesting, Kate, tell me more about how you prep for a podcast when no one will see you. (laughs) Well, as you ladies can can see, like evidently hair is done at my end. Uh, face is on, again, probably for the first time in all of COVID. And actually the bits that you can't see um, are very tidy and uh, draped in French lingerie. <laughs> so I also instinctively just femmed up date style. I love that. And I love your little sideways glance. <laughs> <laughs> lots of those, darling, lots of those. Erin, Saya, what was your preparation like? Uh, <laughs> I feel very, um, I feel like, oh, that sounds so great and luscious and I wish I had have done that. <laughs> Maybe I'll just have to come back and do some more of that. Um We'll do an episode yeah, too, great. I'd love it. Us Sagittarians, we're too busy flying by the seat of our <laughs> pants to do much prep, aren't oh, we? No, I, yeah, I've been um, rolling around trying to do all the other things that need to get done today in some sort of varied order of no order at all with something that sidetracked me somewhere and led me there and then back there and then, oh, yeah, I'm doing that. Oh, I've got it. I did make a really nice cup of chai or a pot of chai, but that's as... um. And I thought about some things. <laughs> but um, preparation for, you know, what, as uh, I sort of said when we had a bit of a chat yesterday, I really feel quite fluid at the moment and I've had a lot of stuff going on. <clears throat> so I'm fairly, um, I can be a very grounded person, but I'm very, very fluid at the moment. And so a lot of memories and thoughts have been coming to me um, just in in regards to some of the things that we've talked about and they've come through as you were saying Kate exercise Mm. but it's it's me flapping around in you know crawling through the garden and pulling something out and going oh yeah that thing or just um yeah it comes to me like that but that's yeah so I'm so happy to be here I don't know about the preparation I've just um uh I've float in here I am beautiful (laughs) here you are and Erin well it's a lovely Sunday so I had a sleep in which was nice and made myself a fresh juice and had some breakfast and I'm at my second cup of tea and it's the second time I've worn makeup since lockdown so a little bit doled up for you I'm sure that our listeners will really appreciate our makeup and (laughs) trimmed pubes and French lingerie (laughs) So that's a beautiful segue to get into the conversation, isn't it? Um, I thought that we might begin um, by talking about a time where you buck traditional norms and patriarchal expectations and adventured and in a way that was really intuitive for you to do so. So happy to hand it over to any of you. I know that Erin and Zaya, you've got stories of adventuring physically, geographically, 
Um, I'm not sure if you'd like to start there, but yeah, over to you. Actually, I was having a memory um, earlier that made me smile, or I think when Mal and I first started to discuss around this idea, um, we talked about, you know, the, I guess it's a traditional path that people take of, uh, you know, finishing school and then coming out of school and going to uni and da da da. da. Um, I, one of my stories is that the the day after I finished my VCE, my friend came over early in the morning. I think we had gotten drunk the night before, and she and she had uh, said, "Let's go traveling. Let's go traveling." And I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah." And she, she came over at really early the next day, and I was living with my mum. And she said, "And she said." I haven't seen my father. He lives in Harvey Bay. I haven't seen him since I was a child and I want to go and see him. Will you come with me? And I said, oh, yeah, okay, What what's your plan? What? How are we going to do that? And she said, well, I think we should just catch a train out to the freeway and hitch. And I said, oh, okay. And so we did. <laughs> and so we hitched and we didn't really know what you know, what was where or what was going on, but we hitched um, <laughs> to Sydney and we met people in Sydney and stayed with people and like this whole new crew, like we were just out of high school of of incredible people and adventures and strange things happened and then, you know, ended up in Nimbin and Byron and that's my first sort of introduction into into those areas and and um and those connections. And any anyway, we ended up in Harvey Bay hitching in trucks and incredible truck drivers and I mean there's so many <laughs> stories in there. But that um that so, sort of opened up a, a gap decade, I call it <laughs> of <laughs> of um traveling and adventures and uh yeah I was just thinking about that sort of time of hitching and just going out and just really finding adventures and how freeing that time yeah is and how did you keep yourself safe it sounds like you were pretty footloose and fancy free and just going with the flow like how do you navigate um safe territory for you what's the role of intuition in that at that age it's pure trust (laughs) I think um trust in trust in in trust in the universe or your friend trust in the adventure self maybe trusting in the adventure like letting things happen to lead on to other things being open to to adventure and nothing you know I've had a lot of strange adventures and been open um there's so many stories just flickering through my mind (laughs) going down dark alleyways in Cuba with people going and ending up in weird rooms going oh this could be a bit weird but it's you know (laughs) tell us more about that Does it involve salsa dancing and was I there? (laughs) (laughs) This particular one you weren't there. It was before you got there. But, um, yeah, there have been a few times where I've thought, oh, I'm just saying yes to things and then I end up somewhere and go, oh, it's a little bit awkward maybe. But, uh, yeah, I'm really lucky to have um, had a a lot of trust in people and things and and not really had that too much pulled from under me. I mean, there has been a few cases of of things, but not in any way that that I have lost my trust in adventure or in my own spirit of play and child 
self, something like that. Uh, and I suppose that <clears throat> weaves into intuition and and it's such a lucid thing, intuition. Uh, yeah, I would say that's more trust in adventure than maybe. Mm, I'm not sure. It's so big. Wow. <laughs> and ha- I'm curious to hear, um, did trust and adventure run out or how was it that that decade was the bookmark time of mm. this experience of yours? No, it never runs out. <laughs> no, I'm still on trust and adventure. I think I lead my life in, in trust and adventure, but adventure takes different courses and uh, when I was younger, adventure was kind of led very much by by travel and the outside world um where it's sh- you know it shifts it's actually beautiful hearing Zaya's story because I'd completely forgotten that I'd shaved my head and went off to <laughs> India on my own at 20 it's like oh there was that time at band camp oh, that's cool I shaved my head too once you did it's mm, amazing yeah. so liberating Erin I'd love to hear about your adventuring I know that you also made choices that were non-linear in nature would you like to share them with us yeah sure so I didn't have uni as a traditional path for me my family didn't um, no one had been to uni so it wasn't a thought until year 12 but by then it was too late so I kind of made life about my uni my you know learning from life doing every course I could um but I thought the tradition was to get married and have kids, the white picket fence. So I did uh, get engaged and married by around 22. Um, oh, we were together for four years, but I really decided that it wasn't what I wanted. Um, so I moved on and started to um, – that's where my adventures started, travelling overseas, cabaret dancing, and just learning more about myself in the world. I think it's beautiful that, Erin, um, that uh, – life can be your university yeah I think it's um it's certainly a lot cheaper particularly if you want an arts degree yeah. at the moment but that life but that life can be your university totally. um is quite special um and it actually I think used to be more like that you know as long as you got your foot in the door or like if I think about my mum's generation the generation before that if you could get your foot in the door to an industry that's how you learned about the industry. But now it's very much your, we're really yeah. kind of pushed to, in terms of if we talk along that linear path, to go to university to do the learning for the job, um, which if we come back to that sort of exercise and exercise, um, there might be great value in literally sinking your teeth into something as opposed to um, I suppose theorizing around it and by the way I've done four degrees so you know it's like maybe maybe I'm speaking from someone who's like yeah guys you don't need it it's really fun but you don't need it you did one for me thanks <laughs> no worries Erin I'll share it around I always lots of theory I always thought that I'd go back to UD in my 70s just so that mm-hmm. I could say I hadn't done it but I think with little in common with younger generation I don't think I would actually enjoy it so I think Mm. I've decided not to bother but I just wanted to prove that I could do it but I think Mm. I'm over that now. Mm. Kate was there anything more about your story that you'd like to share with us? Yeah it's funny I I sort of um you know I I know my big doozy non-linear story and it's like do we do we say that first or do we give a little you know insight into the little tinkerings that might have led up to it but um it was, one, it was just reflecting. I remember thinking 
Uh, I was like a very, very, very shy kid um, when I was little, but I used to love Cindy Lauper. She was like my major favorite. Um, and I remember thinking whenever choices were presented to me, what would you want to tell your grandchildren, particularly my my female grandchildren? What would I want to say to them when I was presented a choice? What did you choose to do? And it's funny that that question has kind of followed me a great deal whenever again I am presented with choices. Um, and I, you know, Mel, I've reflected a little bit with you on, you know, presenting to a bunch of academics at Monash University, the only person who doesn't have a doctorate, talking about pleasure in education. You know, <laughs> it's like non-linear, non-conformative. Death's not patriarchal. Um, but I, yeah, my I. As a 40-year-old woman, I always come back to, uh, I suppose, when you, you ask this question, a more recent choice, which was, um, I guess, finding myself uh, having never been married, as opposed to, Erin, you're talking about getting married at 22, not owning a home and never having children but always wanting them. I made the decision to uh, try for a baby on my own through IVF. Um, which, um, I, you know, you, you would imagine maybe, you know, to be a, uh, a potentially kind of fraught decision to make. And there were definitely some pretty horrifying, um, comments, language prejudices that came up around that, um, including, uh, having to, essentially kind of tick a box that said that you were socially infertile um, because there's nothing wrong with my fertility, um, but I didn't it's have – so offensive. Oh, it's so offensive. Oh, God, it's so misogynistic. Oh my it gosh. just makes me feel quite ill. The language, right? The language. Is that a industry term? It's my understanding, yeah, that it's industry but also medical. Mm -hmm. So the same way in which um, a woman's eggs past 35 is deemed geriatric. Oh, wow. Um, so you would have geriatric – the medical industry calls them geriatric eggs no matter whether you're going through IVF or not. Um, it's, it's, it's the language that is used to classify you because there's nothing wrong with me fertilely. So there must be, you know, something wrong with me so socially if I don't have a partner oh, obviously. and I'm choosing, How non yeah, yeah. And I'm choosing to do this as a single woman. Um, also, I also have a huge problem with the word single, by the way, but that's like a whole nother oh, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. I can't relate to that at all. I, I see it on forms and I'm like, oh, but that doesn't capture in any way the colour that exists within my personal circumstance. So I, I, I'm on, I honestly sort of pause really confounded about what box I meant to tick because I feel like I don't fit into a box. Oh, totally. And I always have this like um... – sort of academic phrase, which is everything is relational. You know, that's what I want to write on the form. Everything is relational and therefore I am not a single end theory, you know. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it was um, an incredibly adventurous period for me, um, which, um, as I said, kind of or touched on briefly, like this wasn't actually necessarily a, a first choice for me. I'm an incredible romantic. The thought of making life with somebody was like really sexy to me. And then it was like, hang on, it's going to be over in a second. And you're like, I'm going to be in a hospital sort of scenario. Like that's really sad to me, actually. But the 
intuition, I suppose, because you brought it up before, or even just that known guttural desire to be a mum was so strong that it was a decision of the heart to make that choice to to do IVF as a as a single woman. And um, and then it was just about choosing how I approach that adventure. So it is kind of sexy, or it is relational, or it is bountiful and lush. And um, you know, in that regard, I I pulled together all my incredible women to help me choose the sperm donor and um, to hold my hand while I was being inseminated. It was um, it's actually quite beautiful. <laughs> wow, what a journey to go on with your women folk, and how radically divergent from the norms that normally govern why people enter into or how they enter into the process not why but how they enter into that process Mm. and did you I'm curious to know did you um were you faced with any prejudice or any stigma for going about that that particular journey on your own interestingly like I have an incredible crew of women so there was of course a lot of well, I was very lucky. I had a lot of support and, and even support in the way that I was kind of making it fun, you know, that we'd all gather around with Chai and read all of these uh, men, these top four that I'd chosen, kind of like a Bachelor episode or something. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, today, their sperm. I think partially, as I said, the prejudice or the um, the othering was in the language that um, I was just constantly confronted by through the medical system. Um, it isn't something, the language is not something that supports women choose, choosing, and I will, I have emphasized the word choosing for, you know, a reason there, um, choosing to do that on their own. So the language, definitely. I think some of the othering also came through just offhanded comments or even my own concern about, you know, because we're our own worst enemy, right? Like my own concerns about what people might think of me I think some of the hardest comments you know were just simply around like oh my god you know I could never do that and and you know that's an impossible task or um you know why why can't you just focus on other things you know like why does it have to be about a child why do you want that and I was like well don't I get to decide that like don't worry about it I'm worrying about that you know because it's you know, it's a huge part of my desire on this on this particular journey that I got. I want to be a mama, you know. There's a piece of that that really resonates around information coming in from, you know, those who know about why would you want to do that? Oh, you know, that's so hard. And for me, I feel like one of the adventures that I went on, I mean, God, like Zaya, I don't know if it's the Sagittarius thing or it's just a, a me a me thing as much as it could be anyone else, but there's lots of adventures. But I would actually say that the one that is um, the one that I want to share is around the leaving of my daughter's father, where I I heard those same those same comments. You know, it's it's prejudice masked as concern by making that choice. It's very confronting for some people who would like to make that choice, but for whatever reason can't. And, you know, basically when I became pregnant with my daughter, I had a filled out form for the Sea Shepherd to apply to crew to Antarctica on my desk. (laughs) And I had a full year's worth of gigs. Um, Like I was at that time performing with Erin actually in burlesque and 
there, there was just so much going on for me. And um, I left my daughter's father. Oh, I first raised it when she was six months old, so she was just a little baby. And really I, I felt like there was a bit of universe intervention because um, it was a day where, and it's funny how you remember circumstances, like small details, you know, on a day that's going to prove to be quite uh, a game changer, quite a pivotal turning point. And on this day, I remember going to the letterbox. I remember that it was a sunny day. I remember getting the post. I remember that my daughter was out the back in the grass, little bub just under the sort of dappled sunlight, grabbed the post, raced back out the back um, to be with her and sat there and opened the post. And um, it's always shit when you get those letters with the clear pane yeah. with your name typed on it. <laughs> I mean, as a bit of a rule breaker, like it's often not good news for me when I see that kind of a letter. And sure enough, I opened it up and really the only word that I could see was eviction. And um, we'd only been in this place for six months. Um, in fact, my daughter was born on moving day and I'd received the same letter earlier that year. Um, because the owner, again, wanted to move back into their premises. And although we had said that we wanted to stay there for a while, we were only six months in. I didn't even have, I mean, can you imagine I brought a baby home mm -hmm. into on moving day? <laughs> um, so the process of putting things in their place while attending to a, a newborn was just impossible. There were some things that weren't even unpacked. And for me, it just was like a colliding of worlds. And, and I remember in my drama um, imagining my life as a book and that the final chapter was like and she just lived out her life in mediocre happiness, never had a satisfying orgasm and was shunted suburb by suburb further to the outer rim of Melbourne and I was like, oh, fuck no, like just no, no, that's not going to be the story. And obviously um, things were sufficiently um, shit for me to be like, um, uh, I'm calling it, like this is this is going to be the last move together. And, yeah, sure enough, that was um, where, where we ended our story a couple of months later and I, I went my own way and, and he went his. Welcoming Zaya back. Hello. <laughs> um, yeah, that was a strange adventure. I was just chatting to myself. Everyone was frozen with really great faces on, though. Good listening faces. It was fantastic. <laughs> intently, um, Zaya. Yeah, intently, intently. I'm on my phone data. Something's happened to the internet, so I don't know how well my phone will continue, but I'll just... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll just go with this. Uh, Carry yeah. on. Um, I'm just curious. So even though we lost you, did you tell your story into your phone? Um, I think at some point I was like, oh, they're very intent. Oh, great. And then <laughs> mm, I think they're frozen. And then I went, oh, frozen. And no, I didn't continue. That That's a good point, though. I could have probably just continued there. Yeah, because we were talking about the role of intuition and intuition was keeping you safe and trust in, in the adventure. And then I was like, okay, so it lasted for a particular amount of time. 
what was it that brought it to an end? Like did intuition run out? Did adventure run out? Um, what changed for you? Mm. I think I call it a gap decade because it was really a floating around um, 10 years of um, quite deep uh, listening listening to callings and following those callings. Um, I mean, in that gap decade, I, I did have Lily as well. So, um, but I, I think I really allowed um, things to call me and I moved with those callings. Um, what changed it was probably that I, and in there I was doing a lot of things. I did commit to things, but I had a lot less commitments. Having a child was a commitment, but she still flowed through um, and just came on every adventure with me and I didn't um, turn away from adventures just because I'd had a child. So I suppose I call it the gap decade because then after that I, I did go back to study and sort of put my roots down a little bit more, but not for very long really. Um, Saturn return was a really, for me, that time, that sort of 28 um, was a real time where where I feel like it, it shifted, but I, I still really am called by adventure and I still do go that way, but I'm much more grounded with the way that I do it. Um, or choose now and particular whereas I, I think I was more like oh that's pretty I'm going that way <laughs> like oh that's fun mm, that smells nice oh I like the look of that <laughs> you know and much more um, uh, flighty than I, I'm much more grounded with the way that I use my energy now um, I guess I was searching as well when you're younger you're looking for your path and you're looking for your your people or I was, am, still, too. Hello, people. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, something like that. Um, thanks, Aya. Erin, I know that you've made choices, um, you know, on your journey related to the motherhood sort of topic. Did you want to delve into some of your decision-making? Yeah, sure. I was in, at the time, a conscious relationship of ten, almost 10 years and we were re-establishing every, well, for the first year it was every three months. Do we still want to be together? What do we want to do? And uh, every year then we'd assess whether it's children. And by the ninth year we had decided it wasn't really going to be an option for us in that relationship. But also when um, Zaya mentioned the Saturn return, my Saturn return manifested Crohn's disease for me. So I ended up being sick for two years. Um, I left corporate. I thought it was corporate that was making me sick, but obviously there's lots of things that I was unhappy with underneath in my life that needed to change. So I um, went through those you know, quite major surgeries, having a bowel resection and needed a just quit my job in Collins Street and stayed home for six months to recover and started an admin business. Yeah, so that was pretty hard just leaving the corporate world and not really knowing what my next move was going to be, but I just trusted that the universe was going to fold the path before me and I would be okay. I mean, I had a partner at the time, so I wasn't alone. Um, but because of the scarring down my stomach and having my stomach muscles cut a few times, I just thought, well, being pregnant and having that scar stretch just really didn't appeal to me. <laughs> I'd been through enough physical pain, so I'd never really been clucky and didn't think a child thing was for me. I wanted to pursue a more spiritual life and I didn't think that I had the energy to, to give that full attention to a, to a being. 
Um, so no, I, I've chosen a more selfish life. I think I wanted to just be more spiritual and adventure and also just the physical of not having, not wanting my scar stretched and being in pain. So yep, no, I just chose not to have children. I was just going to say, Erin, I've literally written down in my notepad physical commitment because I think that is something that comes into the story. And I loved, Mel, that you began with, you know, serve through storytelling. I think this is a, a part of the conversation that is really important when we're talking about to be or not to be when it comes to motherhood, that there is this physical commitment. Um, from from kind of you know word go and you know how are we with our bodies at at that time when we're thinking about it or not thinking about it if it just sort of happens you know um what are are our relationships to our bodies because that is something i guess that well that can as you've so beautifully said Erin come into that dialogue around whether we want to be mothers or not and and actually what was really interesting um is through the IVF journey, you have to take a bunch of hormones. I had to inject myself with hormones every day. Um, and I've always had a very uncomfortable relationship with my body and it expanded like, you know, quite a bit. And I had to kind of grit my teeth and say, you know, for the greater good, like I want to be a mom. This is something, this is, I'm making a physical commitment as much as a heart commitment here. Um, you know, if I want to have this child, this is something that I have to, I was going to use the word sacrifice, but I feel like that's a bit too much, but mm-hmm. <laughs> this is, you know, that I have to actually take into consideration that this is going to be a massive part of that journey if I, if I choose it. Um, and you know, there is a discourse around, you know, um, if we're talking heteronormatively, at least anyway, you know, that if, uh, you know, what is that experience for a man if they are not holding, birthing, you know, the child? And what is it like for us when we are? And again, I'm talking heteronormatively. I totally respect that. Um, but there is a physical commitment, you know, and I hadn't actually thought of it like that. Of, of, interestingly, Erin, until I was putting the hormones into my body and when I feel sick, I feel really like, you know, quadruply emotional, um, and I don't like this expanding body, um, particularly I think because it felt a little bit unnatural to me again that Torian wanted to have a baby through having sex and wanting to make more life with a partner. It was all of a sudden like, oh, like I was expecting expansion because hurrah, life, <laughs> um, but not through hormones, you know, these these sort of – yeah, hormones that I was given. So you've given me some language there, Erin. I really, yeah, I appreciate that, a physical commitment. I saw a post that um, a friend put on on Facebook and I'm not sure what prompted her to write this, but she was saying um, that, you know, on, on the birthday, on the birthday of a child, how uh, the the mother is so absent from the happy birth birth day and when you really kind of pull that apart it's the birth day and um she was sort of saying like she was increasingly um thinking questioning how much right men had to the whole experience of pregnancy and birthing and 
and, and that on the day they they send out this cheery text saying, "Oh, mother and baby are doing well," and it's so she was so um, triggered actually would be the best word by that. And actually, I I feel really, really similar because uh, in my experience, when I said that I was pregnant, um, my daughter's father said, well, that he would give up smoking. And I'm like... (laughs) That's the least you could do, buddy. Thanks. Yeah. (laughs) And (laughs) how about this? I'll give up my body, Mm. my sex life, Uh, my career, Mm. my friends, my uh, pleasure things, which may or may not include, what was that? Sleep. Sleep. All of these things. And and I'm sorry, what? And, And so the bit for me where he couldn't even do that was so incredibly offensive to me. And the bit where the court thought that it was fair in my court orders to say that uh, I get the hour in the morning before we rush to go to school to be with my daughter on our birthday, um, but he gets all the uh, extracurricular time off the tail end of school. So to be clear, um, we wake up an hour early, we do rush presents, everything then is rushing you know, behind schedule, I then take her to school, he picks her up, he gets 3.30 till bedtime and I have an over-sugared, tired child at the very end of the day to put to bed. And I just really question that. And I, I actually think, you know, that the this dialogue alongside, um, so, so even the way that we're talking about birth in a, in a, in a really, um, I'm trying to find the right word for it, like realistic, I suppose, but saying, you know, um, like using the language, even Mel, what you said before about getting the news that you were pregnant and how you honestly felt about that at the time. Again, these are stories that aren't in common discourse and that are actually really important. You know, I, I, most of my friends hated the whole birthing process, you know, had envisioned, you know, ha oh, glory, hallelujah, um, birthing their child and absolutely hated it. it, was horrific, like a horror film, most of them said. And I think that that's really important to share, you know, I really do, whether you want to be a mum or not, whether it's expected or not. But there's actually a great deal of hardship birthing, carrying, you know, a child. It's really important we talk about it more. Kate, um, in earlier, I, I don't know if it's from one of the other talks that you've given or, or maybe it was in a message to me, you described the day that you were born and I'm wondering if you would um, share that in terms of your grandfather, your dad. Um, yeah, would you like to share that story? Yeah, so um, the day that I was born, my grandfather was doing work on the house, a carpenter and plasterer. And um, he, at the moment that my mum's water broke and she was going into labour for the first time ever, um, he packed up all of his tools um, and left saying, oh, it's women's business. Um, And then Graham, who that's the name that I give him, he doesn't get dad, um, uh, took himself to sleep because it was going to be a big day for him. Hmm. (laughs) 
Nice. Well, he, he, he was going to need to wet the baby's head, right, and get pissed with his mates once your, you know, 20 hours of, of painful delivery was over. Yeah, look, not sure what that was. You know, obviously birth takes a while and he might have to stand around and hold a hand for a bit, Um, you know, not sure, but it was going to be a big day, so good to get some rest before going to the hospital and, um, yeah, doing all that. Well, one stuff. wants to look one's best on a day when <laughs> photos are going to be taken, doesn't one? Look, what I know of <laughs> Graham, I think probably that's what he was concerned about. <laughs> <laughs> I have to admit, um, uh, yeah, no, I was looking far from my best, but I, I do consider myself to be extremely fortunate in that, um, actually my birthing story is one, um, that I think of warmly. Um, it was actually really beautiful. It was, um, very sort of staged. I had given up doing my, oh, I had postponed my masters in turn, uh, so that I could train for the birth. <laughs> so I had a doula with me. Um, Zaya had provided a lot of counsel and information actually based on her previous experience, um, of birthing her daughter, Zaya. And um, really things just sort of stepped out in an incremental way and it was actually uh, a very beautiful mm-hmm. experience. I did at the end of it go, I'm never going through that ever again, but, um, <laughs> you know. And, and also I guess in that regard that the not choosing to have children is also a beautiful story as well. You know, I mean, Erin, you were talking to the choice not to and the adventures Um, the other adventures that you have had, you know, alongside that. And again, like that is such an important thing for everyone to hear, you know, the, the, the choice not to and what adventures and what beauty comes from that choice as well, particularly when it's aligned with Erin, what you want for your bloody well fucking life, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I assessed it every year and, you know, do I want to have children? How do I feel about it? What would that mean for my life? And then, yeah, by the time I was in my probably early 40s, I thought, okay, I'm at peace with this decision. And that's when you spoke before about donating eggs. Um, Yeah, I called up and they said, no, you're too old. (laughs) We don't want your eggs. And I was so offended. I thought, well, if I can't have a kid, at least I'll help somebody else. So when they rejected that, I just thought, oh, (laughs) thanks. Yeah, that's that's um, a common story and, and actually one of the reasons why uh, this, it's not quite in line with what you're saying but it just made me think of um, the reason why I chose the donor that I chose. Um, he was the only person in the letter who actually referred to, so whenever he wrote to the child and wrote to guardians or parents actually would had a whole lot of slashies would say um your mum slash your mums slash your mum and dad slash you know and I felt really included there as opposed to you know it's like because again I'd felt so excluded Erin because I had these geriatric eggs that no one really wanted and they were saying it's probably not going to work for you you're too old I'm like I'm 39 what do you mean haven't even hit halfway yet um you know there was just constant rejection as you've kind of experienced when you're wanting to do a beautiful thing um and it was my my I was so grateful to all of these men for donating and and for quite often articulating I'm doing it to help other people but there was only one who was inclusive who actually recognized that there might be just a one 
woman who wanted to have a child on their own and I was like that's the sperm for me someone who's inclusive who recognizes I might be out there wanting to do this you know um Zaya did you have anything that you wanted to share uh on that topic regarding um your second pregnancy and entering into motherhood the second time Mm. Uh, actually, a lot of uh, different thoughts are kind of flowing through my mind as I'm listening to Kate and Erin and, um, and our choices, yeah, in between. What would I like to add? I've been an accidental doula for a long time. Um, I was um, I was invited to a birth with my best friend from high school. We found out that she was pregnant when she was seventeen accidentally, and I was at um, the birth of her daughter, and we were both. Uh, about 17, 18 at the time. And from there, I've had this journey of, of being at births. And I think I've been at, I haven't counted for a while because I, I guess I'm, I'm sort of now out of the age of being at everybody's births, but uh, maybe 18 or 19 births of children, um, including two of my own. So I, uh, I think there's a lot that we don't talk about in regards to birthing, but I think every birthing story, however horrific, is is incredible and beautiful. Um, and I, I'm very, I, um, I feel very strongly about about that place. And choosing to be there or, or not is is a really strong decision too. And in regards to my second pregnancy, the first my first pregnancy was was accidental, but Uh, There was so much more flow in it, actually, than my second pregnancy Um, was was a lot more difficult. I was it was probably also because I was older, but that that idea of uh, of adventuring and uh, being pressurized by the outside world or stigma or my own stigmas on myself, having being older was really, really different from being a mother when I was 22, 23 and then having Roxanne at um, 37. Um, Zaya, I'd be curious to hear, just because you spoke of stigma then, um, those two ages are sort of at either end of the fertile kind of um, Mm, mm. spectrum, if you will, and I'm wondering from a prejudice perspective, was there more or less as a young mum or as a so-called older mum? There was much more as a young mum, the way that people would look at me with um, Lil and, you know, the way that the other mums at school were with me. I mean, I was young and alternative, so uh, there were two things that were just left me on the outside a lot when all the mums would stand around in their lycra and latte and I'd be there with, like, you know, I don't know if I had dreadlocks or what at the time but you know um sex pistols t-shirt picking up my daughter (laughs) you know something I don't know there was a lot but I probably didn't give a shit um where maybe I did more being old or I have more maybe being older but I've found that sometimes it's been the same thing being now that maybe it wasn't that I was younger maybe it's just because I'm I'm not typical so I still get excluded by the mums in their lattes and their lycras so yeah not sure a lot more judgment when I was young though 
that not typical is so like the hairs on the back of my neck stands up. Um, I think partially because that was what I just so desperately wished to be was not typical, you know, and then, you know, you, 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 I mean, this world that we live in right now, you know, we've talked a little bit about um, change, you know, there is so much change always, but we also know of ourselves that we are, if we, if we are open to learning and growing, we are always hopefully going to be changing. And therefore that can change our choices and our, um, you know, how we want to be or whatever. So I don't even, you know, the, the hair stand up because I don't actually understand what typical is and who bloody well got to decide what it is, you know. Um, yeah, it, it, it enrages me. And, and in fact, I suppose as I began on that other end of the spectrum, it really excites me. Like I don't want to be whatever typical is. I want to be malleable and growing and changing and being curious enough to go, ah. Oh, you know, it's, it's not having a baby with a man. Okay. It's, um, IVF. Oh, I'm having miscarriages. Okay. What do I learn about being a woman here? And how can that then shape the next part, the next part of my life? You know, um, I just don't understand what typical is. Can anyone please explain what typical is and, well, and I, why there is a typical? Uh, uh, it'll be a surprise to no one to hear me say I know where it comes from and, yes. and I don't want to be the only one saying the P word, but, you know, there's mm. a particular system that sits above us that um, enforces particular ways of being and um, ways of behaving and those are the norms that I feel like feminism is really testing at the moment. And, you know, when I talk about feminism, what I'm talking about is equity, is equality. Um, you know, feminine, like true feminism isn't about one gender being, um, more powerful, more dominant or more pervasive or, you know, it's actually about balance. It's about masculine and feminine being equal. I just really feel like I want to add to that regarding typical Kate. I think I, um, and for the listeners out there, I'm Eurasian, so um, my mother's Malaysian Chinese and my father's Irish-ish Australian, and I have never been typical and I have been treated as non-typical since I can remember. Like I remember being really young and working out that I was being teased for not looking the same as other people. So um uh, and I think it's it's the P word, but it's beyond that. It's culture. It's so many things that make us not typical and then mixing culture and, and all of those things. And um, I think I have tried to find uh, – to take pride in being not typical but it took it took a while to find how to do that so I've always been non-typical <laughs> and I look you know and I've been treated that way because of how I look as well um, and maybe the way that I've chosen to um, express myself too obviously but but just also as a child the way that I looked yeah mm. so it's always been something <laughs> uh Erin as what you know you and I've been friends for 20 years or something and many of your life choices are definitely not typical um I'm wondering if you'd like to share some of those stories 
with us and maybe how you deal with with doing that in you know being that in the face of um I don't know like judgment or or um criticism or stigma yeah I guess I've never really cared what other people think it's about what I feel is true to my heart and where my journey is taking me so I don't if I make a decision I don't feel I'm going to get the judgment of anybody else. I mean, your family are there to support you and they know what you're doing. So I've never really felt any kind of stigma or judgment. But, yeah, I set off overseas cabaret dancing for three years. Um, I went to South Korea, um, Malaysia, Taiwan, um, Thailand and Japan for about a three-year period. And at first my uncle was calling my parents going, oh, break her legs, don't let her go, she won't be safe, the mafia will abduct her. You know, there's all the fear-based stories. But I absolutely had the time of my life. I, You know, it's a working holiday, you get beautiful accommodation, you work for a couple of hours each night. It's so different to experience and live in the cultures rather than just visiting as a tourist. And, oh, it's that that whole experience just helped form who I was going to be after I came back from that experience. Um, I then moved to, well, actually, my Japan stay, I met an Israeli. I was still actually married to my first husband, so I divorced him and hooked up with an Israeli and we ended up getting married um, by a celebrant in, in back in Israel in one of my visits back to Israel. And then I brought him to Mel, uh, to Adelaide where I lived but I wanted to um, just give him a better life. And I thought Melbourne, because of the performing, there'd be more options for for me to do that here. And also the, the Jewish community here is bigger. So we I brought him over to Melbourne and we set up a life here. Um, our plan was to go back and live in Japan because we just loved it so much there. It was just our home. It was just so beautiful. So I started working at Goldfinger's um, I probably worked three months full-time, but I was also working as, you know, a PA Coles Meyer head office in Taronga during the day, so <laughs> these double lives going on. Um, yes, trying to save up lots of money and just go and continue our life elsewhere. But uh, in that meantime, the relationship broke down and unfortunately he ended up taking my money um, to the casino one night and lost everything that I'd saved. So that was a huge heartbreak for all the work that I'd put in. Um, it's not it's not easy work working in the the tabletop dancing industry. You make it work for you. You learn your boundaries and you learn how to navigate that world because it's quite different. Um, so yeah, I just thought, oh, for all the money that I've earned, every lap dance that I've done, and my money's gone. So um, unfortunately, that relationship then um, ended, and I started a relationship with a man that I actually met at Goldfingers. I've never crossed boundaries with work and personal before but uh, I went home with him one night and of course he didn't pay me for the dance because it's illegal if you go home and spend the night with somebody and we were together 10 years and he was my blossoming into spirituality he was nine years older Uh, so that was just a beautiful conscious relating journey together exploring you know do we try non-monogamy do we try this do we try that and it was just such an opening in my Melbourne experience so that's that's how I came to Melbourne and I've just loved loved living here ever since. Wow that's such an incredible story and again I'm hearing things around um intuition um and, and I'm wondering uh 
maybe bringing in some of the sensual self kind of stuff like um you know how was that for you doing uh the the dancing at goldfingers and what was your role in your relationship with determining that that's what you you would do and and were you able to like if I know you as a very sensual person were you able to hold on to that sensuality while you were doing that work well I think when you're young you don't really have that much physical persona it's all about you know your mind's out in the world you're trying to be this you're trying to be that and you're exploring I think because I was cabaret dancing overseas and we were also doing podium dancing spots to the DJs or the live bands between sets of our shows Podium dancing just became something I loved doing because instead of just doing the stage show, you'd put on whatever outfit, you you know, back then it was the stripy leotards (laughs) and, uh, you know, the Afro hair and whatever and just get up on the podium and dance. So when my cousin introduced me to um, when it first opened in Melbourne, it was Santa Fe was the first one. Um, I came over to visit her and I went and checked it out and I said, "Mm, no, I'm sorry, it's not for me. I really don't like it at all. And then uh, about six months later, she said, there's a new one that's just opened. It's called Goldfingers and I know you'll really like it. And because we'd been in Japan together, she came over when I was in Japan and she ended up hostessing all around Tokyo and having an amazing experience. We kind of knew what each other liked and didn't like. So I came over for two weeks to try the podium dancing and she would get all of her clients to come in and pay me some money and sit there and not look. They'd stare up into the air just so I could get comfortable <laughs> with doing that in public because it's not something I'd ever done before. Um, so it was kind of an extension on the dress-up podium dancing to the dress-down podium dancing. And then being, I guess, because you, you're a woman in, in becoming and you're surrounded by all these beautiful girls and just so sensual and sexual, it just... It helps you learn to get more in touch with who you are. And, of course, when you're standing up on the stage and writhing around, you're kind of touching your body. And I think I just learned to really accept who I was sensuality-wise, just um, all the different exploring that you do in your mind, especially when you're just you know making friends with all these amazing women and hearing all of their stories and why they're doing it and how long they're doing it for, putting themselves through uni or they're a single mum. It's just so inspiring to be surrounded by that much support. So, Amazing. Yeah, it was just an incredible experience. And uh, so, yeah, I did it for, well, when I came over, I tried Goldfingers for two weeks and I made like $7,000. So I went home and I packed up my life, brought my husband over here and we set ourselves up and she found me a little apartment in St Kilda. And that's what I did for, um, so I did three months full time just to get, my base money sorted while I was living here and then I went back I was working for Coles Meyer so I decided to temp for them at the the head office so then I just went back to the day work because that's you know I love doing the admin stuff but I needed the the fun stuff as well Melbourne's vibrant because compared to Adelaide Melbourne's quite exciting so I wanted to always be in that and then just went back to part-time at Goldfingers uh, two nights a week for about a year. What a story. And then night <laughs> Then the nightclub dancing started and all the member parties and then I was podium dancing in lingerie and just having the most awesome time for the next 10 years. (laughs) 
Can I just say, Erin, I wish that, I, I mean, I wish for a medical system that would say, oh, you're struggling for cash for whatever this thing is, you know, and, and you want to be really relaxed to like, you know, make a baby through an insemination. Just go out and do some dancing, um, earn your seven grand a week and really lush out on your body and we'll see you in your next cycle for insemination. I wish someone had said that to me. Well, I had a um, a very specific experience with reconnecting with my sensual self. It came after the birth of my daughter. So um, after I separated from her father, I did declare myself um, asexual. And what I knew was that I was never going to enjoy sex ever again. Um, I I couldn't look at myself like I couldn't even see myself, and and I would view what what were hot you know people but I couldn't see it I I they were just humans sort of passing by or whatever and a dear friend of mine had enough of that and she took it upon herself to buy us two tickets to um SNS <laughs> which for those people who don't know and probably most won't um is called uh saints and sinners to many it's <laughs> Yeah, of course. It's three floors of fucking, basically, a huge nightclub of alternative behaviour. And dang, she damn did, she did, she did cure me (laughs) of my idea that I was an asexual human forever. And um, that was one threesome that basically put the lights back on for me. And I've never looked back. Awesome. It's a good one, isn't it, Zaya? It's so good. <laughs> I it's it's um it's funny, it's a, it's reminded me actually, you know, the sensual self has always been just, you know, a huge part of my identity and I I've shared with Mel, you know, that the opening of um a talk that I did on pleasure at Monash University actually began with talking about those um those little oil balls that you used to get back in the 80s. I don't know if you remember them. You'd put them Actually, in the bath. Actually, they still exist. Yes. Oh, my God, I have to find them. I have to find them. Yeah. I will get them for you. My daughter wants some as well. Oh, my God. <laughs> but you know that the heat would melt the skin so that the oil would drizzle through the bath. And as a five, six-year-old, no joke, and this is how I opened my my talk at Monash University, kill me, swear. I swear to God. But um, I would actually massage them in my pocket as a five and six-year-old to get the, like, pop sensation, you know, in, in my pocket. Um, but where I had found myself single at an older age and then having to consider IVF was actually through a really horrific, traumatic end to a relationship and I've actually, you're the first person, Mel, that's, that's sort of talked to something that I experienced around um, feeling asexual and, and actually, for me, feeling this incredible loss um, around my identity because the thought of um, being with anyone um, actually riled my skin a little bit. Maybe that's not asexual, but it just was suddenly... I like I didn't want to masturbate. I didn't want to do any of that stuff. And what was interesting is is that part of the trauma was a was um the simple simple act maybe of 
a partner cheating on me and that for some reason that created this incredible discord where I was like, I am, I don't want to exist in a world where maybe that sort of stuff happens. I don't want to give that intimacy, whatever it is, if that's something that can come up. And I can see you there, Erin, and I'm just like chomping at the bit for you to like butt in and talk to me about it. <laughs> but that because of a, an action or a choice that someone else had made, I suddenly felt this incredible disconnect to my own body. And went on a journey to rediscover not only my sensory and sexual self, but also how it, how it is now, you know, like I am not the same person that I was then nor when I was five years old and, and, you know, all of a sudden finding myself in a place, you know, I've always been a monogamous and I always say like a, a full-bodied mastica- mastication kind of, full, you know, monogamous. I'm like all in and it's going to be delicious and wonderful. But suddenly finding myself in territory as, you know, a, a 37, 38, 39-year-old who wasn't only thinking about IVF but was like more lovers than I've possibly ever had, you know, um, and how good glorious and wonderful that was as a practice of rediscovering and even in a new way my sexual self um and again that thing of you know at that age I wasn't supposed to be doing that that's what you're supposed to do as a female in your teens and 20s and then suddenly bucking that norm you know and going for it not that I didn't maybe in the past either but really going for it you know (laughs) in my late 30s and how delicious that was um and really starting to kind of own um what I like and what I don't like respecting what you like but that's not for me and and it was yeah it's been a really yummy period actually in the end yeah these ageism sort of myths that are you know women should have you know be a bit better behaved by the time they're you know ripe old age of insert whatever ripe old age is that's 37 or Mm. 40 or nearly 50 or whatever um, yeah, it's really like, I, I love that our shared stories really challenge those myths, um, and hopefully put a, a new face on it. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a wise crone in becoming and blossoming is how I like to coin it. I've been perimenopausal <laughs> for the last three years. So I'm, uh, 19 days off turning 50. So I think at this point in my life, I feel more comfortable with my body and my sensuality and my sexuality than I ever have been. Um, my partner of the last 10 years, we have been living apart now for a, a year and a half. He lives up the road and uh, he'll just come down on the weekends and stay with me from Friday to Sunday. So it's given me more space to be me, who I want to be, without having to mother or baby or, you know, he had children as well. So I tried the stepchildren thing for about eight years so it's just the first time in my life that I've lived on my own and had my own space and I ch- obviously chose not to have children so I've now got a dog. He's now six and he's just my life. He's just the most beautiful divine creature. So you do have and a I'm child. Really happy. <laughs> yeah, my fluff child. So I'm really happy with discovering who I am. You know, If I want to lie in bed and chant and moan and groan just for the sake of it, <laughs> I'm in a house, there's no neighbours that can hear me, I'm on a busy road, there's traffic, so I can be as loud and noisy as I want 
whether I'm masturbating or not, I'm just really enjoying opening up my, my throat chakra, opening up my body and just learning how to be me, which is such a beautiful thing. It just takes so long for us to get there and find the space in this busy world. It really too does. Too busy looking after everything. Yeah, as you say, Zaya, you know, the learning and growing, the learning and growing, like, you know, I reflected earlier that I, this morning when I sat on my couch and I and I watched the sun come up and I journaled and I had ABC Classic FM in the background and I had my cup of coffee and I just felt so happy. I just felt so happy to be me and, and proud of the unconventional life path that has led me to exactly this point. And sorry, not sorry that um, I haven't conformed in any of the ways. And it's absolutely true that I basically have not achieved anything that I thought that I would achieve, <laughs> which is really, I'm actually not even sure what, how to feel about that. But what I do know is that I've, I've achieved uh, so many other things that I didn't know that I, I wanted. Um, and I feel so very rich for the experience of being a single parent um, for much of the last 10 years, um, I have chosen a non-monogamous lifestyle. Um, there are pros and cons with that. Uh, cue a shout out for <laughs> the Lever episode a couple back where we talk in depth about that. Um, but for me, this this lifestyle works for me and um, I'm absolutely devoted to the the learning and the growing and just being really, really present with that. And actually, as I adult, uh, facing more confidently um, with the norms and, and um, you know, potential prejudice that sort of comes with that and holding my own in the schoolyard, in society, in my profession, um, in all the places where maybe I should be a little something else and a whole lot less me. But, you know, like I, I work sort of in the engineering sector and goddamn, I'm putting on my curls and my red lippy and a flowery <laughs> dress and I'm entering into C-suite meetings with pale male style and I am being me. Thank you. <laughs> and it's beautiful role modelling for your daughter as well, just to be so oh. powerfully you. Well, yeah, and, and that's a whole other part. I mean, when it comes to role modelling for my daughter, the reason, one of many reasons that I actually left her father was around wanting to role model what a strong, confident woman looks like who's prepared to make hard choices but ultimately is is going to risk and win uh, in the long term. I didn't want the role model to be a downtrodden, overly frustrated, bitter, constantly in battle, you know, mother who was dissatisfied with her life living in the outer, 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 outer suburbs of Melbourne because, Melbourne, you know, renters, that's just what happens to us. Um, no, no, I didn't want that as a story for her. And, and actually, it's so funny you say that coming back to this, this language of you must be socially infertile if you don't have a partner. <sighs> the reason why I didn't actually have a partner to make a child with is because there was always a point in every relationship that I've had, the longer term ones, and I have chosen quite and, and stayed in quite toxic relationships. 
But the reason why I didn't have a partner around that 39 age or at least 36 um, when I sort of became single for quite some time is because I suddenly had a vision of what that daughter, that future daughter or son of mine might see that a relationship looks like. And I was like, I have to break up this relationship because I do not want any future child of mine to see that that is how two people relate. And so to be honest, when they said to me, oh, you have to tick this thing called socially infertile, I was like, could you actually get the men that I've had relationships with in the past and talk to them about why they're socially infertile, actually? Because that's not that's not me. That's not my responsibility to tick, you know, that box. Um, and in fact, in that way, even though I am not a mother and I'm not sure that I will be, I know that I've made some incredible choices around being an incredible mother because I have chosen not to subject any future child of mine to what I deem an unhealthy, even if it's just non-communicative you know, <laughs> um, relationship. Um, so I've always been a mother in that regard even though I don't have physical children of my own. I do have some kick-ass nieces, though, by the way, who wished in one of them in when reading Charlie in the Chocolate Factory got a bit bored because she wanted a strong female lead. I love that. I love And her. I'd be curious to hear um, in your lives whether you have those role models. So was there anyone in, in any of your lives who um, provided the kind of character and zest um, that you've ended up adopting? Well, for me, I've not really had a role model to look up to, but my mother wasn't allowed to work. My dad didn't want her to work, so she stayed home and looked after us and tended to the lawn tennis court. We had a nice life, but she never worked. So I took it upon myself to make sure I lived the life for her mm. and me. It's like I had to prove that I could give us both some fun and excitement. I mean, I kind of got over that when I spoke to her more as an adult and learned more about her life and her amazing jobs and her amazing life before she married my father. So I, I guess... I had to role model something that I wanted my mum not to miss out on. So by sharing my experience, experiences and when I went overseas, I'd make letter tapes, cassettes, and I'd send them home and I'd send them photos like crazy. So I think I wanted to be the role model for her, thinking that she's missing out, which obviously wasn't the case, but that was my perspective at the time. Um, yeah, there's um, – I'm I'm – so lucky because I have an incredible mother who's made some amazing choices. Um, and it's one of the reasons actually I knew that I could do single parenting on my own and, and also know um, that, you know, because so many people actually said to me, you know, they were a bit concerned about, um, you know, uh, what I wouldn't be able to do because I didn't have a partner to support me through that journey. And I was like, oh, I think I'm going to be doing more actually because I'd seen my mum take us overseas. Mum uh, had a four-year-old and a two-year-old at the time that she became, you know, that she left Graham. And, um, you know, she has just the most incredible story. She is so full of spunk and sass, still traveling, obviously not in the age of COVID, but travels overseas every year, um, moved from, you know, has had um, in 
incredible journeys through her career. So, you know, was a nurse, then moved into television. I mean, what a leap, you know, again, as a single parent. Um, I have just the most incredibly strong, spunky, passionate. She, um, I, I always say that I got my, um, that gene that makes me jump up when the sun is rising and it's beautiful. I got that from my mum. you know, it's like she would knock on the door, guys, you have to get up, there's balloons in the sky, you know. Um, and I would also, I did want to, um, to this question, I think later in life, I've actually um, chosen role models through the queer community as well too, because there's nothing like, you know, being in a position where you are suddenly othered to go, okay, I want to find some other people who've been through that. Um, and I think because in part it was to do with, um, you know, how do you create a family? What is a family that the queer community suddenly became just this beacon of fucking light because there were all these incredible um, examples of what family and love in family could look like. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen the documentary Seahorse either where you, um, it's incredible, it follows a trans man uh, going through the IVF journey and you actually get um, the camera is on while he is birthing his child um, and I it just, you know, wept because, I mean, oddly, I just felt so kin, you know, it was like, yes, family can be anything, you know, um, as long as there's love and respect. So um, as, I mean, all through my life, it has been my mum, but later my, my, oh, yeah, just love my queer community um, and really, really appreciate the sharing and the generosity of their stories as well too in that regard. I think a great thing, women tend to find the support they need. You know, over our lifetime, we'll pick a friend from here and a friend from there and a friend from there, and they may be all, you know, quite not a group of friends that hang out together all the time, but you've got someone who's experienced that, someone who's experienced that. So you've always got support around you. And I've been in a lot of women's circles over the years that are just so beautiful and supportive and you just sit there and you feel, you know, heard, witnessed, loved, cared for without any advice giving. I think just the way we bring women to the space when we need it, I think that's a really beautiful quality that we have. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think my role models have mostly been my peers, um, two of which are on this call today. Um, Yeah, and and that's certainly been my experience, Erin, where there's always been somebody, there's always been someone who's had the information that I've needed and the door's always been open and it's such a, it's a beautiful thing that we have, we women, where we're so comfortable um, or prepared to indulge discomfort in order to, to get what we need and, and to learn from, from those that have information that would benefit us. Yeah, I mean, we learn our vulnerability and if we can ask our friends and be, you know, safe to ask, we get what we need and that's a, that's a really great attribute that we have. Perhaps in closing, I'm, I'm wondering if there are things that you've learned um, along the way that uh, really stand out to you that, that you'd like to, to share to the listeners? I think in that regard, and it's probably quite um, similar because for me, intuition is of the body. I mm-hmm. was at Lorna Marshall, who's you know, a bit of an acting person, um, wrote The Body Speaks, a book called The Body Speaks. 
Um, and I feel the more we listen to that, the language that the body, um, the way that it is communicating to us, I feel like there's more room to listen to intuition. And I think, you know, if there was anything that I was to say is to trust your intuition. And I say that mostly because sadly, there's been many, many occasions where I haven't, or, or rather I have, but three, four, five, six years later, when even, you know, the visions of things that I'd had in a first six month period come to pass, like almost exactly, you know, those four or five years later, I, I, I can actually visually right now see all of these punctuation marks in my life where I've had the gut instinct. I've had the intuition that says you do want this or you don't want this. And the moment when I haven't chosen to trust that and I know we've we've spoken once before the four of us have, about you know do you regret anything and I think it's wonderful to to suggest no um I don't because um you know it's it led me to the learning that I've got now and all of that sort of stuff but um I I do I do maybe not regret I am sad for those times that I have not trusted my intuition because I'm I've learned um now hitting 40 that I'm pretty fabulous and I know what you know is good for me actually you know even if I'm open enough to learn something new about what's good for me or what I don't like you know I do know I do know of course I know and I know when it's a no and I know when it's a yes or I know enough to trust when it's I'm not sure yet I need a little bit more time yeah so my big thing is that like really just trust that that um intuition that's that's a big one for me Mm. honor it that's really beautiful and profound advice I've heard the yes being described as a full body yes and there was just something about that that for me was a bit of a light bulb. I intuitively knew exactly what that felt like mm. and many t- how, on many occasions I have not listened to that full body yes and also the full body no. <laughs> I really agree and feel what you're saying about the the intuition and trusting that and finding that that whole body yes the mm-hmm. sense of the yes when we when we know that it's the right way to choose or the right mm-hmm. way to go uh even if there's fear there and and trusting that this path even if it's less trodden is one that we can follow and by doing that by being guided by your intuition that you are learning and opening up new fields of possibilities and ways and that on this way and through this forest there are other wild women who are who are there and who will hear your call when you need it just just as as you wonderful wild women have have mentioned and said and and that there's always uh, somebody else there who will open up and share advice if there's the the trust there and that that there are more and more of us running wildly in different directions <laughs> yes i love that well thank you thank you so much for sharing your stories Mm. um 
amazing. I feel really emboldened mm. and really um, grateful for your time and uh, um, quite fortified, you know, and I hope that our listeners feel the same. Um, you can listen to this episode via Apple Podcasts um, brought to you by dissatisfunctional.com. Is that right? Yep. <laughs> um, yeah. Thanks. Thank you. It was fun. Thank you so much, Mel, for getting us all together. Yum. Yum indeed. <laughs> I agree. What a bunch of gorgeous women. It's so lovely to meet you. Yes. I appreciate you all. Thank I you. So now it's time to like and subscribe to the Lever podcast. Go over to YouTube and check for dissatisfunctional.com. Uh, spelt just the way it sounds. This is the perfect time to share the stuff that you like with your friends. So if you've liked the conversation today, then please leave us a review in the Apple Store. Do have a Patreon. You can chuck something in the tip jar for $2 and you'll get special unreleased B-sides. But no one's got a job. How are you going to pay for that? You just have a listen. You enjoy it and choose in for next time the intro track you're listening to is by neil lawrence who's done a great remix of the bullshit song i made on garage band so thanks very much neil if you're listening out there talented man and if you're new go and check out the previous episodes you'll definitely find something that speaks to you all right everyone thanks for tuning in see you again